please uh, stand with me. Uh, Pastor Wayne will be uh, preaching to us this morning in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again are so thankful for your word through this scripture, Lord. We pray this morning you would speak through Pastor Wayne, uh, that uh, you would speak truth to us, that we might grow in faith and a greater knowledge and understanding of you, Lord. Pray that you would uh, provide this to strengthen us, that we may uh, share the, the great news uh, with the world, that you may be glorified. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and soften our hearts as we receive this message. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the dear men in our church, who's actually in this service, is uh, Jewish, and he's struggling with how to observe the uh, Jewish holidays that are rapidly approaching this fall. Uh, for example, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. It's the first day of what is considered now the seventh month. It's called Tishri, or at least has been since the Babylonian captivity. And it's known as the Day of Trumpets, when Israel blew their shofars. Now this is a shofar, although it's not exactly like what they might use. They use these to call people to worship. And the shofars they used, the, many of the horns were much, much longer than this one, but they would blow the shofar and everyone would know that it was time now to gather for worship. And the reason they did that is because it was associated with the deliverance of Isaac there on Mount Moriah when a ram and Palestinian thorns died in his place. And so when the shofar was blown on Rosh Hashanah, it began a 10-day celebration that led to Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day, Kippur, covering, uh, or atonement. It's known as Day of Atonement. And from Rosh Hashanah to Day of Atonement, 10 days, continual repentance. The common greeting during that time was, may your name be inscribed, referring to the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I would encourage you to keep in mind that the Hebrew calendar, which is lunar-based, dates back to the time of creation. And it was associated with the various agricultural seasons. That's why their new year, Rosh Hashanah, when you plug it into the Gregorian calendar that we use and have been using since the 16th century, that's when we replaced uh, the uh, Julian calendar with their Gregorian calendar, what happens is, is their first day, the head of the year, lands in either September or October. Now this year, Rosh Hashanah is, uh, begins the evening of September the 25th, which means that Yom Kippur this year is October 4th. 
Now, is there anything wrong with observing these feasts? What would you say? No. So long, so long as the observance is in celebration of the fulfillment of these holidays in Christ. See, that's the point that, that Paul makes when he's writing to the churches of Galatia in chapter 4 and the point that he makes in our text today. To demand that Gentiles become Jewish to be Christian was nonsense. And for Jewish Christians to demand these holidays be observed as a means for garnering the Lord's approval was also nonsense. If you are Jewish, as my good friend is, and I dearly love him, if you too are Jewish and you want to observe a feast or a holiday, I would encourage you to do it, provided, provided you can celebrate it in Christ, realizing that the Lord prepared the world for the fulfillment of his promises through these shadows, through these pictures that were given to point to the incarnate arrival of Christ in his atoning work at Calvary. So if you can do that, then it's not a problem to celebrate those observances. What the problem is, is whenever you say those observances are necessary, you must observe these the way they were in the Old Testament. Even though you are in Christ, you've been made complete in Christ, you still have to observe. That kind of religious legalism is nonsense. See, that's why Paul says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been made complete in him. And he's the head of all rule and authority. He has cut from you. He has circumcised the sinful nature that you inherited from Adam. Verse 11. That's why we identify with him in baptism. That's why we do it. Baptism represents his death to sin. And his resurrection unto a new life for those who are part of his body. That's verse 12. Canceling the debt of our sin by nailing it to the cross in Christ. Therefore, now whenever you see that word un, you see that in our text? It's uh, in the New Testament over 500 times. Whenever you see that, you need to ask yourself, what is it there for? What is it there for? If you are a new creation in Christ, don't you let anyone pass judgment on you with regards to food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, when he says let no one pass judgment on you, this doesn't mean you're not to have anybody hold you accountable to a moral standard. That's not what he's talking about. Look at the context. He's saying those that are born again in Christ, those whose sins have been forgiven in Christ, those who've been justified before a holy God in Christ, those who realize the demonic realm has been defeated in Christ, no ruler or authority, physical or spiritual, rules over you. Therefore, because of all of that, therefore, don't you allow any cultural secularist or religious legalist intimidate you with a bunch of nonsense. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is that? 
as Christians, what is our focus? If you're a Christian, what is the focus of your life? It's the worship and adoration of Christ, right? That's what leads you to live in a way that truly glorifies Him as your Savior. What happens if you take your focus off of Christ and you put it on your religion? What happens? Now your life is no longer really about Christ being glorified as much as it's about you and what you've accomplished, right? That's what the problem is. It's like the Pharisees of that day. Their focus was not on the Lord as much as it was on them, what they did, the garb they wore, the prayers they prayed, the fasting that they did. They wanted everybody to see how emaciated they were. It was a way of them broadcasting how holy they were. It was all about how much money they gave. I mean, you got to remember the Pharisees were very wealthy businessmen. That whole Sanhedrin made up of, of Sadducees and Pharisees were wealthy individuals. That's how they got those positions of influence. And so they made quite a show at the temple with not only what they gave, but how they gave it. Because they would tithe mint incoming. Oh, they were very meticulous about their self-righteousness. That's why when a widow lady comes in with two copper coins, Christ praises her. Why? Why would he praise her instead of them? They're giving far more than she's giving. Yes, but they were giving out of the abundance of what they kept for themselves. She was giving out of the abundance of her love for the Lord. See, for her, it was a matter of the heart. Before my grandchildren were born, I officiated high school and small college basketball. And one of the guys that I worked with asked me one time if um, I would be willing on a Saturday morning and afternoon to assist him in calling uh, a tournament for some small Christian schools. And I agreed to do it. And first thing I noticed when I walked in was all of the girl cheerleaders had their hair in a bun and their skirts went down to their ankles. And then I noticed that all of the male players wore sweatpants during warm-up and during the game. There were to be no legs to be seen anywhere. And quite frankly, I have no problems with guidelines that promote modesty. I think that's a good thing. School uniforms serve positive purposes in many cases. What was the problem? When the game began, some of the adults who put the rules in place were among the worst fans I've ever seen. I threatened to remove one guy if he didn't settle down. And one of the coaches told me, he says, you can't remove him. said, he's the father of the main guy. Now, if you're thinking, oh, I've struggled with that too. I've yielded a few officials. Well, let me assure you of this. Wearing your hair in a bun or down your back or covering your legs with a dress or a pair of slacks will not and cannot address matters of your heart. So here's the problem with legalism. If you think consuming certain foods or drinks 
observing certain festivals, bringing an offering to the Lord at the new moon. Hebrew calendars were lunar-based, so the Hebrew word for month means new moon. So everyone in Israel stopped their labors at the beginning of the new month. The shofar would blow, and all would give thanks to the Lord for his provisions. That's the way it was supposed to be. Do you realize that in the days of Isaiah, though the Lord had implemented this with Israel, he said, stop it. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Why? You're observing the new moon celebrations while you are deliberately living in rebellion. In other words, observing feast without a heart for the Lord was as much nonsense in the Old Testament as it was in the New. Of all those feasts and regulations, these are shadows of things to come, including the observance of the Sabbath. They're no longer necessary. Why? Why are they no longer necessary? The Hebrew word Sabbath, Sabbath, means day of rest. The Lord created in six days establishing the week, and rested in the sense that he ceased to create on the seventh day. Why? That's how he meant for men to function. You are to work, and you are to rest, and you are to worship. Therefore, this is what man was to do. Did they do that? No. They ignored the Lord. They began creating their own gods. So when the Lord calls Abraham, and he gives him a son of promise, Isaac, and then he gives to Isaac twins and chooses one over the other before either are born, Jacob, and he changes his name to Israel. And when he puts Israel down in that incubator in Egypt, and he grows them into a nation and brings them out of slavery, headed to the promised land, what's he give them? These are my people now. I have chosen them for a purpose. What's he give them? He gives them his word. And what about those who break your word? He gives them the tabernacle where blood is to be shed. And he says to them, he says, you are to stop on the Sabbath. Going back to the way I intended for things to be. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. You're not only to rest, you are to consecrate this day. You are to remember that I have set you apart for my holy purposes. It's through you I give the nations of the world my law. And I give them how the law breakers are to be redeemed and reconciled. Through the shedding of blood, one without blemish. And on top of that, he gives them hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah who will accomplish this atonement. So once Christ comes, these, these dietary codes that were given to them to teach them purity, these feasts and festivals that, that paved the way for the coming of Christ, the new moon and the Sabbath celebrations that were shadows, were pictures, were lessons, they're fulfilled. They're no longer necessary. So for someone to say to these Christians who are complete in Christ, he is the substance of what those shadows were all about, verse 17, 
they need to continue with these observances. It was just nonsense. And the same is true today, folks. Anyone that tells you that, that elements of their religion, their religion, are essential for your salvation. The advice of the Apostle Paul is, don't allow them to pass that kind of judgment on you. Don't you allow them to convince you that sacramentalism is necessary to add to your faith in Christ. Don't let them tell you your faith in Christ, granted to you by God's grace, is insufficient. Don't let them tell you that you have to, to purchase indulgences. Don't you allow them to tell you that you have to, to give up eating meat during Lent to obtain God's blessings? Don't let them tell you that, that you need God's grace to be administered to you through, through communion. Now, some of you are going to very astutely ask, well, what is the difference between religious legalism and Christian obedience? Because, I mean, there are things we read here in, in the Bible that we are to do. So what, what, how do we know if it's religious legalism and how do we know if it's just simply being obedient Christians? It's a matter of the heart. See, a legalist defines his spirituality by the external keeping of regulations that he really thinks makes him more acceptable to God. See, you can't confuse that with obedience. A Christian is obedient to God's word. Why? Why are we doing that? We're motivated from our heart out of our love for the Lord. We respect him. We're grateful. It's out of our gratitude for his goodness and his grace. I mean, being in Christ, being this new creation in Christ, we want to walk in fellowship with him. That's the nature of the new heart that we have received in Christ. See, that's very, very different than the pharisaical external commitment to rules and regulations that can be a kept that can be kept and observed without having any heart for the Lord whatsoever. See, the problem with legalism is not that you can't keep it. The problem is that you can keep it. And by doing so, you're very proud of just how, how holy you are or how humble you are. On the other hand, you take somebody who repents of their sin, genuinely repents. And they're disciplining themselves daily. Why? Because they seek to honor the Lord with how they live their life. They're doing that because of the new heart. The new heart the Lord has given them. One that has been circumcised. Not with hands. But has been spiritually circumcised. We no longer serve the sinful, selfish flesh that we received from Adam. We now serve the Lord because we want to. We seek to honor him. That's very different than the legalist who've got a whole external list of do's and don'ts that give the appearance of righteousness when they're not right with the Lord at all. As a matter of fact, Christ said to some of them, your hearts are far from me. You're the most committed religious people on earth, and yet your hearts are far from me. Matthew 15. And there were legalists in Colossae. 
and they're intimidating members of the church by judging them according to whether they continued to observe these festivals, whether they continued to observe Passover, whether they continued to observe the new moon festival, whether or not they continued to observe the Sabbath. You've got to remember Colossae is predominantly a Gentile area. Just imagine if these Jewish legalists succeed in their attempt to impose Judaism on this church. Can you imagine the conflict that's going to cause? The confusion it's going to cause? The division it's going to cause between Jew and Gentile? I mean, that's why Paul said in Galatians 3, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave nor free. The word there for Gentile is Helen. That's the Greek word, that's the native word for Greek. The Roman Empire, you'll remember, was still under the Hellenization that Alexander the Great had imposed upon them three centuries earlier. And can you imagine a church whereby, because of their Jewish heritage, some were still observing these Jewish holidays. Some were still adhering to these diet codes, believing that it made them more acceptable to the Lord than, than these Gentiles over here who did not do that. Can you imagine the religious arrogance, the division that it would bring, the deception that it would cause? Paul is not saying that Jews and Gentiles no longer exist. He's just saying that in Christ it no longer matters. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you are a part of a conquering nation as the Romans were or you're part of a conquered nation as the Israelites were and considered slaves. It doesn't matter. When we were in Indiana, I took my grandsons to William Henry Harrison's home. He was the ninth president who spoke way too long at his inauguration in the rain and got sick and went in and was committed to his bed for the next 30 days before he died. And they had different fees for adults and seniors and children. But what if on Tuesdays the fee is the same for all ages? And when I go in there, I say, I need tickets for two adults, my daughter and her husband, and I need a ticket for a senior and I need a ticket for three kids. And what would they say to me? They would say, doesn't matter. You're all the same this morning. You're all the same. That's what he's saying. Jew, Gentile, being in Christ, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether your ancestors were given the word of the coming Messiah or as Gentiles you received the word of the coming Messiah from them. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you were given an XY chromosome at birth making you a male regardless of how you want to be recognized. You're a male. Or you got two X chromosomes making you a female. Doesn't matter. Your only means of salvation, your only means of redemption and reconciliation is in Christ. It's not in your ancestry. It's not in the gender of your birth. It's not in the nation to which you were born. Now this text is not saying that everything in the Old Testament was of no use to Christians. That's not, what he's, that's not his point. I mean, the laws the Lord gave to Israel in Leviticus 11 were physically good for them. And they were meant to spiritually separate them from these pagan nations over here. 
And many of these diet codes that were given, I mean, they, they were to teach them purity. If you want to know more about that, I don't have time to go into it this morning, but read Dr. McMillan's book, None of These Diseases. He covers that. Nothing the Lord gives his people in the Old Testament is bad for them. But all of the laws, all of the dietary codes meant to set Israel apart from the other nations could never and would never make them holy. That can only be accomplished in Christ. That's why Christ said in Mark 7, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach. Thus Christ declared all foods clean. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no, better off, no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't exercise wisdom or discernment in our eating habits. I mean, we all know that too many Snickers is not a laughing matter. But dietary habits are not a sign of spirituality. You can practice great discipline in your eating habits for personal reasons, for physical reasons, for health reasons, and still have no heart for the Lord. I'll give you an example. Romans 14. Um, there was an issue there in the church there in Rome, and so Paul addresses that. Chapter 14, verse 2, he said, One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Ah, we got some friction going on in the church, don't we? Vegetarians versus the pro-beef eaters. And let's say to strengthen their position, some of the vegetarians said, you know, let me give you another good reason why you ought not eat that beef, okay? Some of that beef has been offered as sacrifices to idols. So you better stick with us as vegetarians. Now let me ask you, let me ask you, how would you address that? That beef that has been offered as a sacrifice to idols by pagans, can you eat that? What would you say? I can. You know why? Because that beef didn't worship those idols. The pagan did. So does that strengthen the vegetarian argument? Not really. The beef doesn't worship the idol. It's the idolater that worships the idol from his heart. So is it good stewardship then for me if I can buy that brisket at a discount knowing that when I eat it, I'm not worshiping that idol. I think it's foolishness. I'm worshiping the Lord and I am feeding my body with something that I really enjoy eating. I'm not worshiping some man-made idol from my heart. However, however, if you, if you think that's wrong, then should I eat it? If you think that's wrong, don't you buy that brisket. I don't care how cheap it is. And don't you eat that brisket. And I'm not going to eat that brisket in front of you because I don't want to cause you to stumble. Don't you violate your conscience. 
But also, don't you come in here and demand that we be a Brussels sprout eating church only. To do so is to impose a legalism on others clearly forbidden in Scripture. Let me ask you this. Is the freedom we have in Christ a license to do whatever we want? Be careful how you answer. Be careful. Because you know what? Some of you can answer yes. And some of you would have to answer no. Say, well, how's that? Let me ask it again. Is freedom in Christ a license to do whatever you want? Those who are in Christ, some could answer yes. You know why? Because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Because of how the Holy Spirit works in concert with God's word that I feast upon every morning, every morning, and every day, and every night. Because of that, I can answer yes. Because due to the Holy Spirit and God's word, I always, always want to do what is right in God's eyes. And so my freedom in Christ does give me the ability to do whatever I want because I always want to do what is right. Now, some may not be able to say that. Some may not be able to say, I'm not fully in step with the Holy Spirit that indwells me, and I don't read God's Word like I ought to. And so I'm not fully programmed here to always do what is right. And so I cannot say that my freedom in Christ is a license to continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid, Romans 6, right? So as Paul points out to the church at Corinth, dealing with this issue of eating meat offered to idols. He said, not everything that is lawful is beneficial. (laughs) That's why I voluntarily, for your benefit, I voluntarily reserve my freedom and refuse to exercise my freedom to buy brisket in your presence. And I will not eat brisket in your presence if it causes you to stumble though I am free to do so. You know why? Christian freedom ceases to be Christian when it fails to honor Christ. Christian freedom ceases to be Christian when it fails to honor Christ. The issue is not about food or drink or the observance of festivals. The issue is for those in Christ, it's a matter of the heart. So that's why he says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Now this word disqualify, katabrabeo, it comes out of the athletic world of the Greek culture. Where someone's judging defrauds you of your prize. It's an umpire's bad call. It's a referee swallowing his whistle at the buzzer that cost you the game. He said, well, how did that happen in the church? Well, those who were budding Gnostics in that day, and Gnosticism was just getting its legs here in the first century, those who were budding Gnostics of that day, kind of like the Pharisees of Christ's day, they were defrauding the people. How? 
through false humility. I mean, they're coming off as the most holy of all within the church through their self-denials, through their fasting. Remember how the Pharisees would fast and be emaciated so that everybody would know how holy they were? They were depriving themselves. That's, that's, that's asceticism. That's the Greek word for exercise. You, you, you can't be the Christian that I am until you do what I do. Years ago, there was a lady in my former church who had a very condescending attitude towards everybody in the church, uh, including me. And the reason is, is it had to do with the church she came from, the, the culture she came out of. Uh, she, she came out of a background where she truly believed with all of her heart, she very sincere, that the Lord was giving her new revelations daily, daily. She, she would be slain in the spirit and these messages would come to her. And it, it, it offended her. It hurt her feelings when I told her that it was not the Holy Spirit that was doing this. And some of you are going to say, well, how do you know it wasn't the Holy Spirit? Who are you to pass judgment on her? I wasn't passing judgment on her. I was telling her what the scripture says. She claimed the Holy Spirit told her to do things that were not consistent with the Bible. I'm not the source of authority here. The scriptures are. I can only speak authoritatively to you when I'm speaking from the scripture. And so when she comes into my office and tells me what the Holy Spirit told her, that she ought to leave her husband because he's not a Christian in order to marry her boyfriend who is a Christian, I very kindly told her she was nuts. No, that can't be true. I'll show it to you right here in scripture. But she believed it. She really believed that when she was in tongues or trances or receiving these extra biblical revelations, that she was closer to God than I was, though I was holding to God's word. That's what Paul's talking about. Some in the Colossian church tried to disqualify those who were born again in Christ, trying to make them junior varsity Christians because they didn't engage in worship of angels, because they weren't seeing visions. What they were doing is they were puffing themselves up with false humility. They were very proud of how righteous they were, how holy they were, how Christian they were, how humble they were. And Paul says it was all coming out of a sensuous mind. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This is their epistemology. This is, this is where they are getting their authority for spiritual truth from. This is, a, this is an expression from the cultic religions where they entered into trances to receive revelations that ushered them into higher realms. And Paul takes this word for bellows, which is a noun, he turns it into a verb. He makes a verb out of it. Fusiumenos. Fusiumenos. Puffed up. 
This is known in scripture as a hapax legomenon. It means it's only found once in all of scripture. Why? Why is that? Why does the Holy Spirit have Paul take this noun and turn it into a verb in this situation? They're engaged in phony pietism. And so he creates this word to give them a visual. They are puffing themselves up. Not with great spiritual wisdom, but with a carnality that is coming out of their sensuous minds. Why? Why is this happening to them? Because they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You see the imagery that Paul uses here? If you're a part of the body of Christ and you're nourished by his truth, just as your head controls the members of your body physically, He's saying that Christ as your head controls who you are. And you, numerous ones of you who are part of the body of Christ, you are knitted together the way your physical body is knitted together with joints and ligaments to cooperate with one another of like precious faith to fulfill your calling. So don't get involved in legalism. Don't get involved in ascetic practices associated with visions and the worship of angels and all of this puffed up nonsense that makes you seem like you're better than everybody else. That's not Christianity. And frankly, that's not you, is it? What is his point? It's very simple. Don't trade. Don't trade the revelation of God's word for the speculation of man's experiences. Don't allow the focus of your heart to be on mystical experiences, which, by the way, is very, very common here in the Bible Belt. Very common. Don't let your heart focus on religious activity or even personal achievement. If you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, if Christ is truly your head in the sense that he controls who you are, what you think, how you live, that's you, right? How does he do that? How does he do that? He does it the work of the Holy Spirit in concert with his word. Are you reading his word? Are you? I've told you before, if you're not, you want to start somewhere, start with the gospel of John. Don't start with Genesis because you'll quit in Leviticus. Start with John. And once you have memorized John by chapters, not verse for word for word, that, that's, that's hard for any of us. But once you've memorized John by chapters, go to the book of Romans. Romans is a wonderful New Testament commentary on Genesis. Those first eight chapters, including those two in, in six and seven that have to do with antinomianism, those first eight chapters are magnificent truths 
that you need to have instilled in your bones. And then he'll deal with Israel in 9, 10, 11, and then he'll go to the practical application in 12 through 16. And when you get done, then go to the book of James. Five little chapters that are very practical application. If you're not reading God's word, why aren't you? How are you going to walk in fellowship with the Lord if you don't know his word? And you pray. And when you pray, the Holy Spirit that indwells you will guide you by his word to walk in fellowship with him. And then you don't allow yourself to be puffed up over nonsense. You're not puffed up over how much you know versus what somebody else doesn't know. You don't get all puffed up over how holy you think you are because you don't do this and someone else does. They eat brisket and you don't. Don't compare yourself to others. Look at yourself in Christ. Who you are in Christ is by the grace of God. By the grace of God. That's why you live for his glory and not, and not for your own approval. You don't do things to impress other people with how good you are. Christ says you go good, do your good deeds before others so they will praise your heavenly father who is in heaven. That's why you do good deeds. Why is that? It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. You have questions, you can go to the connect table. I'd be glad to meet with you in my study. You can see any of our elders, pastors, or members. They're always glad to help as well. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to Christ and to his word knowing that you will enable us to grow with a, a supernatural growth that is your work, your work, and not that of man. And Lord, we are so grateful, so grateful that you have not left us to be spiritual beggars, but have provided everything we need for life and godliness, because indeed we are complete in Christ. Complete in Christ in whose name we pray, amen.